Chapter Five of the Master Mystery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Master Mystery by John W. Gray and Arthur B. Reeve. Chapter Five. Father, please open the door. It was early the following morning that the butler, with frightened face, had called Ava Brent to tell her that her father and Flint had been locked in the dining-room all night and were still laughing madly. Ava had hurried downstairs, encountering Zita as she ran. It was true. She could hear the voices inside, nor could she get any answer from the two men. "'Oh, Zita, please, can't something be done?' Ava implored. With a hasty word, Zita hurried away, just as Herbert Balcom himself entered the house from the street. In utter surprise, Balcom nodded at Zita as she poured forth the story of what had been discovered in the morning, then pushed past her in high excitement. "'What's wrong?' he asked as he came upon the butler and Ava, still knocking excitedly at the dining-room door. Ava was almost in a panic as she answered, Father and Mr. Flint have been in there laughing ever since last night. Balcom tried to comfort her, but somehow his sympathy sent a cold shudder through the poor girl. Meanwhile, Zita had encountered Locke hurrying down at the sound of the commotion. To him she told the story, again hurt that his interest was solely for Ava, not in herself. Locke paused long enough to seize an umbrella from the rack, rip the cover off, and break out a rib, to which he tied a piece of string while he hurried to the group at the door. "'Break down the door and call the police,' ordered Balcom. The butler reached for a chair and was about to swing it over his head to break down the door. "'Stop!' interrupted Locke. The young scientist knelt down, inserted the umbrella steel through the keyhole, and bent it by the string as he fished about with it on the other side to find the bolt. Meanwhile, the butler telephoned frantically for the police. It was at this height of excitement that Paul Balcom entered. A moment's talk with Zita, and he too joined the group. Sympathetically, he spoke to Ava, but Ava scarcely responded in the fashion of a girl to the man whom she was going to marry. Her attention was riveted on Locke, who was kneeling before the door. Paul saw it, and an ominous scowl crossed his face. Carefully, Locke worked the umbrella steel and the string until he had caught the bolt. Then he shot the bolt back and rose to his feet. All watched him expectantly as he threw open the door. Such a sight as met their eyes one could scarcely picture. There were Brent and Flint at the table laughing, laughing. The candles had long since burned out. On the floor lay the automaton model. "'Father!' cried Ava, running to him. But there was no look of recognition on Brent's face. "'Don't you know me? Speak to me, father!' Instead, Brent merely patted her shoulder and laughed hollowly. Ava, on her knees by him, sobbed and smoothed his head by turns. Locke, bending over Flint, 
found him in much the same condition. Meanwhile, Balcom and Paul had picked up the model of the automaton and exchanged a quick glance. "'This man Locke's actions are suspicious,' exclaimed Balcom hastily. "'He was in the house last night.' Outside they could hear the arrival of the detective summoned by the butler. "'Go to Ava,' nudged Balcom to Paul. A moment later the butler entered with the detectives. At the sight of the automaton model in Balcom's hands, the butler cried out, "'That is what attacked me last night. Only larger, much larger.' All eyes were now on the butler. Quickly, Balcom took advantage of the situation thus created. Locke also left Flint and moved over to the group examining the model. As he did so, his eye caught a piece of paper under the sideboard. He was about to pick it up when he realized that all were looking at him. Quickly he covered his discovery and faced them. "'This man is the stranger in the house,' cried Balcom in anger. "'Arrest him and make him explain.' It was the work of only an instant for the chief detective to step up to Locke and slip the bracelets on his wrists. "'Don't!' cried Eva. "'Please, my dear, your father!' remonstrated Paul. At that instant Brent was seized with another violent fit of coughing and laughter. Eva, distracted, was half-fainting. Thus, with Locke handcuffed, Balcom and Paul were triumphant. Locke saw his chance, but the handcuffs prevented him from using his hands. In the instant that all were diverted toward Brent, with incredible deftness, Locke slipped his hand from the cuffs, one link of which fell open as if by magic, through a secret all his own. He reached down and picked up the paper under the sideboard and read it. It was the letter Brent had been writing and served only to increase his perplexity. He read it again, then crushed it into his pocket, and before anyone had discovered his trick had slipped his hand back into the cuffs and they were locked again. At that very moment the telephone rang and the chief of the detectives answered. As he did so, a perplexed expression crossed his face as he walked over quickly to Locke. "'I beg your pardon,' he apologized as he began to unlock the handcuffs. "'Here, my man, what are you doing?' interrupted Balcom. "'I know my business. You lay off,' growled the detective." A moment later, Locke, with a slight smile on his handsome face, was answering the telephone. Not a soul, save the detective, even yet suspected the true identity of Locke, even as he answered over the telephone with a respectful, Yes, sir. The fact of the matter was that the message had come most opportunely. It was from the chief of the Department of Justice himself ordering Locke to stay at the house until he had secured the evidence that would allow the department to proceed against the company under the antitrust law. That, then, was the explanation of the secret dictograph which Locke had installed, the explanation of his apparent faithlessness to his employer. But weightier matters were now on Locke's mind. Here he was, faced by the case of his life, involving the happiness of the very girl whom he had so soon come to love. 
His incentive was double, love and success, triple, above all, justice. By this time the household themselves were sufficiently calm to help Brent to his bedroom and Flint to a guest chamber. Balcom was about to follow when Locke, returning from the telephone, touched him on the shoulder and shoved the threat message which Brent had given him the night before under the face of the junior partner. "'Read that,' he demanded. Balcom read, controlling his features admirably, if control were necessary. "'What's the meaning of this?' he demanded coldly. "'Were you in Madagascar lately?' shot back Locke. Locke could not be sure whether or not Balcom suppressed a start. At any rate, he did not conceal anger at the insinuation. "'Certainly,' he replied. "'With my son I cruised through the Mozambique Channel and touched at Madagascar last summer. Why?' Locke nodded, and the detective made a note of the reply. "'What do you mean to insinuate by that question?' demanded Balcom. Without reply, Locke shrugged nonchalantly and smiled. Not ten feet away, in the conservatory door, Paul listened, and his face darkened as he clenched his fists. There was a murderous glare in Paul's eyes as Locke unconcernedly withdrew, whispering to the detective, who nodded deferentially to the young scientist who had been assigned by the Department of Justice, strangely, to the very case which now he realized in some unknown way must concern himself and the very mystery of his own identity. So wore along the morning with growing mystery and excitement. It was not long before the Brent family physician was summoned, and after a careful diagnosis pronounced Brent in a hopeless state as far as his own science was concerned. Eva was by this time more than frantic. The consolation of Paul seemed to add to her nervousness. She was almost distracted when she heard Balcom and the doctor discussing the case in low tones in her father's room. "'Don't you think, doctor,' she overheard, "'that he would be far better off in a sanitarium?' She shuddered as the doctor agreed with Balcom and Balcom sought to persuade her that the course was best. Even the solicitations of Paul annoyed her. Paul was more than vexed at this new repulse from his bride-to-be. His anger knew no bounds as he caught sight of Locke, who had overheard and showed his doubt over the whole proposal for the care of Brent. He plucked at his father's sleeve and nodded toward Locke. Balcom needed no prompting from his crafty son. "'I'll have you understand, Locke,' he cried, his face growing apoplectic red, "'that I am in charge here now. Your services are no longer required.' "'I quite understand,' returned Locke quietly. "'We shall see.' Balcom stormed down from the room to the telephone, where, a moment later, he telephoned to an asylum, asking them to send a conveyance with nurses, keepers, and whatever paraphernalia was necessary to take care of his partner, Brent. "'Is he violent?' demanded the doctor over the telephone. "'Yes,' 
bring a straitjacket, snapped back Balcom, and the sooner he is under your care, the better. With that, Balcom stamped out of the house. In Brent's room, Paul was attempting still to ingratiate himself with Eva, who was growing more distant toward him with every moment. Finally, Paul could stand it no longer. He turned on his heel and faced Locke angrily in the hall. "'You'll regret this, confound you,' he ground out, as he swung out of the room rapidly in a high state of feeling. Unconcernedly, Locke turned on his heel. "'Don't worry,' he whispered to Eva. "'I'll see that no harm comes to your father.' For answer, her own heart too full for words, Eva pressed the hand of the young scientist. It was reward enough for Locke. Meanwhile, at Dr. Shaw's sanitarium, to which Balcom had telephoned with the permission of the doctor, elaborate preparations had been completed for the reception and transportation of Brent. It was perhaps an hour later that the ambulance, with three white-uniformed attendants, pulled out, carrying all those appurtenances necessary for the care of the insane, including the straitjacket which Balcom had so testily suggested. That same hour had seen intense activity in another quarter. In the den of the automaton, the hard-visaged emissaries had been already roused by the entrance of the automaton. Hasty directions had been uttered by the metallic, phonographic voice of the monster, and already four of the most desperate of the characters had hurried through the entrance out on the cliffs. The automaton himself had turned toward the passage through the graveyard of genius to Brent Rock itself. Thus it happened that when the ambulance from Dr. Shaw's sanitarium came bowling along the road to Brent Rock as fast as its motor would permit, the driver was forced suddenly to put on the brakes to save himself from being wrecked by a huge log that lay squarely across the road. No sooner had the attendants jumped out to remove the log than four desperate men fell upon them from ambush, beat them, and left them trussed up and unconscious while they donned the jackets and uniforms of Dr. Shaw's men, seized the ambulance, and swung off again at a fast clip in the direction of Brent Rock. Lulled into a false security, as her father slept now for a long time under an opiate, Eva was sitting beside him with loving care when she heard the noise below of the arrival of the car from Dr. Shaw's sanitarium. At once she was in wild alarm. Nor was Locke off his guard. While Zita tried to reassure Eva, Locke met the men. There were four of them, and as the first passed, Locke halted him. The parley gave another a chance to push past while Locke held three at bay. A moment later there was a scream from Eva, who had hurried from her father's room at the sound of the high voices. The emissary had seized her. It was a signal for the other three, who leaped on Locke all at once. With almost superhuman strength, Locke seized one of them and flung him over his head for a fall down the whole flight of steps as he fought the other two single-handed. 
Even then the third came back to the attack, and Locke was forced to give back step by step down the stairs. Another scream from Eva. In the heat of the fray, Locke caught a glimpse of her battling on the landing above with the first emissary. It gave him redoubled strength. Flinging the two men off and eluding the third, he leaped to the chandelier in the hall and with a giant swing wrapped his legs about the fellow struggling with Eva. Literally throttling him, he pulled him backward over the balcony railing for a fall clear to the lower hall. At the moment when Locke was actually subduing all of his assailants, the door to the cellar suddenly opened, and the huge figure of the automaton strode out. With one blow of his steel fist, the monster struck Locke senseless, then turned and began ascending the grand staircase. Almost paralyzed with fear, Eva screamed again and fled through the nearest door, locking it. On strode the automaton, crashing down the door as if it had been a mere shell. Meanwhile, the emissaries had seized Locke, still unconscious and unable to resist. Feverishly, they began to bind him in the straitjacket which they had taken from the ambulance. Then they carried him and flung him roughly on the floor of the library. Still screaming, Eva fled to the next room again bolting the door and piling furniture frantically to barricade it. Again the automaton rained blow after blow on the door. It splintered, and his powerful fist began breaking and overturning the barricade which the unfortunate girl had improvised. Wildly she looked about. Only a closet now offered refuge. The door was splintered through. She could see the terrible face of the monster. In the library, Locke, recovering by this time, began flopping and twisting, spurred by the muffled screams from above stairs as he worked with miraculous dexterity to release himself from the straitjacket. End of chapter 5 Recording by Roger Moline